Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. Nowadays, if everybody want to talk, then they got something to say, but nothing comes out and they move the leaves. Just a bunch of gibberish, and by the pot is that, they forgot about Clash. So what do you say to somebody you hate, or anyone trying to bring trouble your way? Want to resolve things in a musical way? Just study our Clash of NWA versus Public Enemy. <laughs> Very impressive. Thank you. I have, like, you have stunned me into silence. Well done. <laughs> Hello, Kevin. How are you? I am all good. How are you? Yeah, I'm not bad at all. Looking forward to uh, resuming normal service on uh, this week's show. Yeah, so obviously um, our dear listeners will um, have heard some of your disgraceful jibes <laughs> and absolute shenanigans. Um, but it was a, it's a really good listen, that show. Like, um, yeah, you did a really good job. With well, it. thank you very much. I appreciate I appreciate the compliment. And it was good. It was a lot of fun to... To put together and, and listen back to some of our old shows. So yeah, hope you uh, hope you enjoyed our all time chart show. Those of you who who listened to it, um, but yeah, well, actually no. Before we go move on, like seriously, what what did happen with you and Wonderwall at a party? I, I, we need to know. <laughs> so what what I can say about it is is the. There were so many parties that I went to where someone would get the acoustic guitar out. It's about sort of one o'clock, half one in the morning. And you you heard the first chords and you're like, oh, fucking hell. Time for bed. Like, is there another place? Is, is there another place is that you can go and do that? Uh, you were definitely cuckolded. <laughs> it it did not it did not occur to occur to me, but um like I'm sorry, most people of our generation will say yes. that their parties were ruined by someone <laughs> caterwauling Wonderwall yeah, in the early right. hours. Quite right. Anyway, for uh, anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about, go ahead and listen to the previous show that uh, that we put out. But yeah. Back to our musical road trip today. It's uh, your pick, Kev. What are we doing? Indeed, um, we are off to Sheffield, and we are we will be going through Pulp's 1995 classic, Different Class. In two weeks' time, we will be going through Arctic Monkeys' debut album, Whatever People Say I Am, That Is What I'm Not. Excellent. Looking forward to both this album and the one in a couple of weeks' time. Um... Yeah, again, a difficult one to call, I think. It uh, could go either way, this one. It is a toughie, this one. Um, so the reason for the clash is, well, obvious. Um, that they're both, they're both Sheffield bands. But I think also, and we will definitely go through this uh, when talking through both albums, lyrically, they, they share a connection that mm. they speak to the outsider, they speak to working class life in the north. Yep, um, definitely. You know that there's loads. There's loads of elements that have similarities and a similar worldview at this point. Definitely, uh, there is something else that connects them, uh, which we will talk about when we do top trumps in a bit. Okay. Uh, before we do top trumps, however, it is can't get you out of my head. Time. Um, any shite, Kev? Yes. Oh well. <laughs> Go on. So at at the point of recording, um, 
the immense uh, global sports washing operation. Sorry, <laughs> the World Cup is still ongoing in Qatar. As as we've mentioned, we do listen to other podcasts. Mm-hmm. One of our personal favourites is Quickly Kevin, which is really funny and a and a skew look at nineties uh, football. As part of their preview for the World Cup, they started playing shite England songs and World Cup songs. So the bad song that uh, got stuck in my head was Sven, Sven, Sven. (laughs) Oh, God. By Bell and... I can't even read me right now. Sebastian? Bell and Spunky or (laughs) Spully or something like that. doesn't matter who. It's fucking dreadful. Not Bell and Sebastian. No, it's not Bell and Sebastian. It's it's not based on a... uh, a twee French cartoon. Oh, God. I had completely forgotten about the existence of that tune until you just said that. So had I. <laughs> and, and thank you quickly, Kevin, for um, polluting my brain with that. Ugh, awful. Uh, I have no shite in my head. So, well, I do now. Again, as usual, you've, you've put that in my head. So, thanks for that. Um, so, yeah, what about your shout out? What do you want to give reference to? Oh, I've got something absolutely Ooh, great. Go on. So the song is I'll Make You See God by the Afghan Wigs. That's a great name for a song. So Wigs is the spelling. So the spelling is... Um, the, the old political party. Yes, not um, the Wigosphere. <laughs> uh, okay, so I, I will make you see God, did you say? It was yes, called? and it's a raucous Queen of the Stone Age style rock song. Uh, they're not. They're an old band who have recently sort of reemerged, and it's great. You will absolutely love it. Brilliant! I'll check it out then. Uh, so I am going to give a shout to what's something we have sort of in passing talked about before on Album Clash, and it's the first live song that will be featured on our uh, playlist. So when we went through Rattle and Hum. Uh, we talked about the the film and that there's a lot of live tracks that are, appear in the film which don't appear on the album. One of which is the live version of the song Exit, uh, which is from the Joshua Tree album. Love it. Uh, absolutely. And we lamented the fact that we haven't been able to, to find it anywhere and the fact that it should be on the album. Well, the deluxe edition of the Joshua Tree album includes several live tracks from the Joshua Tree tour, including said live version of Exit, and it's fucking great. So yes, the track I'm picking is U2's live version of Exit from the Joshua Tree tour. Boss, because it's a, it's a song that both me and you have been trying to track down for a long time, mm. and it was released as like a... Like on a YouTube magazine single thing, like you had yeah. to be, you had to be part of their fan club and all this kind of thing to track it down. So I'm very pleased that it's on the uh, deluxe edition. Yeah, honestly, check it out, guys. If you're in, if you're into YouTube, uh, which as much as we slag them off, we are. Uh, pay your taxes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, check it out because it's really good. Yeah. All right, we'll stick those on our playlist, the links to which you can find in our pinned tweet, I believe. Indeed you can. And later on in the show, Kevin will explain how you may find our Twitter page. Oh, yes, I shall. <laughs> All right, top trumps time then, yeah? Yeah, let's get, let's get to it. Okay. Uh, you won last... Oh, yeah, of course you won last time because it was Nirvana, <laughs> so you absolutely thrashed me. <laughs> so uh, you get first pick. Okay, so I'm going to go 
slightly unusually, but I know this is a solid banker for me. Right. Awards. Okay, go on then. The Mercury Music Prize. Ditto, which is the other connection I was talking about. Best Album Q Awards. Uh, nope. Album of the Year NME. Album of the Year Crossbeat Magazine Japan. <laughs> Album of the Year Time. Album of the Year Hot Press, brackets Island. <laughs> Best International Album Meteor Music Awards Island. Best British Album 2007 Brit Awards. Best British Group 2007 Brit Awards. Best Alternative Music Album, 2007 Grammy Awards. So, okay, so you've won. Although I, I, it's not, but it's not as much of a banker as 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 you made it out to be. So, uh, so yeah, Mercury Prize, 1996. So both these albums won the Mercury Prize. Different Class also won two NME awards, including Album of the Year. It had four Brit nominations, but didn't win any of them. Uh, but Common People did win an Ivan Novello Award in 1996. Ooh. So, so two very decorated albums, although, uh, yes, you have taken that title. So um, you're 1-0 up, and it's your, still your pick. Okay, I shall go with sales. Okay. Around 2.1 million. Oh, I win. Two and a half million around Ooh. four different class. So that's quite close. I, I'm, I'm actually surprised. I thought you'd have won that one. I, I thought I thought 2.1 million was a fairly good standing, but yeah. I suppose I suppose it came into its prime as a classic album mm. at the point where the arse fell out of album sales. Well, uh, and as I'm sure you'll go on to talk about in a couple of weeks' time, part of the marketing strategy for the band involved a lot of giving a lot of their tracks away for free on the internet. So. I'm Indeed. sure that won't have helped album sales. All right, okay, so I've won that one. So I'm going to go, well, the logical place to go next is certifications then. Okay. Platinum in Europe and uh, four times platinum in the UK. So it's gone seven times platinum in the UK. Oof. Um, and it's it went gold in Ireland. But, yeah, uh, you, I think you win again there. Well... Or is that a draw? I'm, I'm going to call sure. that a draw. Uh, you have more platinums. I'll call, let's I'll call that a draw. Okay. All right. So it's still one all. Uh, still my pick. Uh, so the obvious one to go next is charts. So UK number one. Ditto. And the only other one I've noted down here is the US Heat Seekers chart. Different class got to number 34. So whatever people say, um, that's what I'm not. Uh, reach number 24 in the US Billboard. Oh, wow. Wow, you have definitely won that one then. It also hit the most important, it hit peak position of number nine in the Ultra Top Flanders. Oh, well, so the there is no Ultra Top Flanders listing for different class. And uh, the Ultra Top Wallonia chart position was a lowly number 47. So the Walloons um, only reached number 22. Wow, okay. There you go. Uh, the Belgians, clearly not big fans of pulp. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but they love a waffle. <laughs> and fruit sauce. But not together. No. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> if you're Belgian, let us know. Do you like putting fruit sauce on your waffles? Uh, a bit weird if you do, but there you go. And that's not a euphemism. <laughs> no, it's not. It's genuinely not. Uh, right, you've won. You're 2-1 up. Go on. Okay, so what should I... I will go with critic scores next. Okay. So all music, five stars. Ditto. 
Enemy, 10 out of 10. 8 out of 10. Rolling Stone, 4 out of 5. Ditto. Nobus McGee, or sorry, The Village Voice, A minus. Ditto. Oh, this is very close. Q, 4 out of 5. Ditto. Guardian, 5 out of 5. Ditto. Oh, this is... We're, we're going to have to... Okay. So um, I've got one more. I, I've got Pitchfork, 9.3. Okay. Wow. Pitchfork, 7.4 out of 10. What? That's fucking Unbelievable. ridiculous. Unbelievable is right. So I I think that's a draw, because I won on the Pitchfork rating, but you got a 10 out of 10 for NME, so I think that's another draw. I'd say that's a draw, yeah. So it's all down. Well, I can I can't win. We've got one category left, uh, and I cannot win. I can only draw. So okay, I'm I'm trying to get it into the corner because I've heard Wimbledon are losing. <laughs> uh, well, so it is the uh, the all time top rankings, and uh, you take us away. What have you got? Okay, Rolling Stones' 500 greatest albums of all time. Yep. Rank 371. 162. Wow. Mm. The only other I've got is the Enemies 500 Greatest Albums of All Time. Yep. Uh, 19. Six. Well, there you go. It's a clear it's a clear victory. It is a clear victory for different class, but actually that means it's a draw. Ooh, we haven't had one of them for a while. We have not had one of them for a while, but this one is 2-2. Two, two. So... This particular battle proves indecisive, but will it be the same in the proper clash over which we will take you this week and in a couple of weeks' time? Okay. Right. Should I start taking us through different class by pulp? Yes, uh, I think that that is the logical step (laughs) for us. And generally the format of this podcast. Indubitably. (laughs) Right, okay. So, bit of background. Well, a lot of background, actually. So it was released on the 30th of October 1995 on Island Records. It's Pulp's fifth album. It was recorded between January and July of 95 at the Townhouse Studios in London, produced by Chris Thomas, who has quite the call sheet in terms of his credits. So he was an engineer on the Beatles' White Album and on Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. He has worked with the likes of Elton John and Paul McCartney on solo material, and he produced Nevermind the Bollocks by the Sex Pistols. Yeah, that's that's not the bad hit rate. No, indeed. Uh, right, so Pulp themselves uh, were formed in 1978, the mastermind of 15-year-old Sheffield misfit Jarvis Cocker. So in 2020, in an interview The Big Issue, we told of his plans for world domination back then because he'd written a manifesto in a school exercise book, which read, The group shall work its way into the public eye by producing fairly conventional, yet slightly offbeat, pop songs. After gaining a well-known and commercially successful status, the group can then begin to subvert and restructure both the music business and music itself. I mean, I would suggest that certainly the first part of that came to pass. Yeah, I would say so. All right, so Pulp's first three albums didn't really make much of an impact on the market. But in 1994, they released His and Hers. That got to number nine on the album chart. And they got their first top 40 single with Do You Remember the First Time? 
an absolute belter as well. It is. It's a really great track. Do you remember the first time? And his and hers is a really good album. Yeah. I like it a lot. Well, because you've got um you got Joyriders and Lip Gloss on there as yeah. well. You know, there's the and babies as well. The, babies, yeah. There's yeah. loads of good stuff there. Absolutely right. So keen to capitalize on that first hint of success, they basically went straight back into the studio in January 1995 to record the follow-up. Much of the writing took place above a pottery warehouse, apparently, which was owned by the drummer Nick Banks's family. So he talked a little bit about the recording on the writing process, sorry, in the an interview with the BBC in 2020 he said we'd set homework where you'd have to come to the next rehearsal with some song idea a word a bit of a tune a phrase a scenario anything we'd swap instruments so that no one was getting too big for their boots it was a great time of everyone being together and having input and you know thinking that we were on the cusp of something which as we've just talked about with the top shrubs they very much were yeah that's that's fair in May 95 they released Common People that, I think it's fair to say, became something of an international smash hit. Uh, it reached number two in the UK and sort of propelled them into the sort of mainstream consciousness, if you like. And that was very much cemented just a month later in June of 95, where, and we've talked about this before, uh, when we did Stone Roses set and come in. So the Stone Roses had been due to headline the Saturday night pyramid stage slot at Glastonbury in 95. But John Squire was involved in a cycling accident, broke his arm, so they had to pull out. So Michael Evis basically phoned Pulp and asked if they could uh, step in at like a week's notice. And I think it's fair to say that what followed has gone down in, in folklore as, as one of those iconic Glastonbury moments. Yeah, I, I believe the set went fairly well. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. And so off the back of the success of Common People, massive Saturday night headline slot at Glastonbury, they went straight back into the studio to finish work on the album. And, well, again, another quote from Nick Banks. He says, we felt that the next record was our chance. It was our time. It was our springboard into the public's consciousness, a chance to reach out to those people who hadn't cottoned onto us yet. Pulp had been on the margins for so long, and the idea that we were going, finally going to be exposed to a greater audience was a delicious sort of feeling. So they were clearly brimming with confidence after, uh, you know, a fairly decent spring summer '95. Yeah, they were they were ready they were ready for it, and I think also that because it wasn't their debut, it wasn't their first first time around the block. That when success came, they had a very coloured view of it which we will definitely come on to yeah i think the other thing is to talk about the glasgow headline set that so there were four albums in by this time and whilst only one of those had achieved any sort of notable commercial and critical critical success they were themselves a well-established band so they were tight and so whilst they would never have performed to anything like the crowd that they performed to on the pyramid stage They'd have had a fair few gigs under their belt. And so for those of you, I mean, I wasn't there in 95. I was too young, but I, I, don't, I remember watching that set when it was on TV. It's been played numerous mm-hmm. times since. You can tell that they're a tight band. It is a really good set. Yeah, it's a, it's a brilliant set. And it shows, it shows them on the cusp of, of greatness, really. Yeah. And I suppose, like, they, as, as we've sort of talked about, they've been knocking around for ages. I mean... I, I don't know the figures, but surely they—they, they, I mean, everyone knows that the fall 
basically played the Peel show every week, but Pulp must have been pretty, pretty close. <laughs> yes, they must. <laughs> they must. So in terms of the subject matter of the album, well, I mean, it's a Pulp album and it's Jarvis Cocker, so there's a lot of filthy grubby sex seedy. <laughs> very seedy which we'll get into obviously uh, but there's also a lot of focus on well as you alluded to in the connections uh, uh, class divide basically um, something that, that he and the rest of the band had become increasingly aware of so Jarvis and a few other members of the band were living down in London uh, and again, Nick Banks says, you really did notice it in London, certainly for us folks coming down from Sheffield. You get invited to some daft party and meet someone who was the Count of Monte Cristo's son or something like that. You didn't meet them in Rotherham, that's for sure. <laughs> no, and I don't know whether you will cover this when you go on to the like, legacy section or anything like that, but you get a song like Cocaine Socialism that they write, um, which is absolutely scathing of mm. the new labor movements and everything where where that where that's going yes so yeah the they were very much uh, plugged into the london and that kind of metropolitan elite were very far away from the real lives uh, lived up in the north very very much so indeed so just the last thing on background uh, it, it is the album title really and and that it in itself is a little window into what the album's about it's it's very much double entendre play on words because yeah different class is a colloquialism for that's boss that that's really good that's great but obviously given the subject matter uh that we've just been talking about mm-hmm. it's it's quite a quite a clever little pun that yeah that they are from a different class yes indeed uh but that's about it on, on background unless you have anything more no, no, nothing more to add. All right. Uh, and so the next bit, I suspect we'll be saying pretty much the same thing here. But, um, Kev, how did you first come across Different Class by Pulp? So, yeah, pretty much when it came out. The the sort of Britpop uh, flowering and stuff like that. The, like anything anything that was new that was on the Lamac show or the Peel show or the Radio on Breakfast show, you... You were bang into, and as soon as as soon as that came out, you wanted to you wanted to buy it. And my God, like the lead singles off this, very much made you want to buy it. So I bought the album very very soon after it came out. Yeah, very similar. So uh, I remember they. So you mentioned that you know yeah the, the evening session etc. They also played a set on Channel 4's The White Room. God, yeah. By Mark Radcliffe, which Prince also played on, actually. That same that same show that, that Pulp are on. Now, there's a coming together of, <laughs> of styles. Uh, and I, I do remember that. Um, but something you said the other week when we, were, when we were going through Nevermind is that at that time, you didn't see, we didn't see the US alternative rock scene as our scene. They weren't our bands. Mm-hmm. Pulp were one of my bands. Yeah, Pulp were ours. Exactly. They were my sister's favourite band. So yeah, this album has a lot of uh, added significance for me because of that as well. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think as well the I, I mean, you were you're obviously from the Midlands, so with them being northern as well, mm-hmm. like whilst obviously the other sides of the Pennines and that, but 
Uh, well, for one, they weren't from Leeds, so you know that helps. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like they were ours because they were a northern band, and mm-hmm. uh, they weren't. Uh, very well-spoken southerners who were from an art school, and I like like that. Sounds like I'm getting into the whole blurred oasis thing. Um, no, but I know what you mean. Yeah, I do know what you mean. Very acerbic. Yes. Right. Okay. Should we go on to talk about artwork? Yeah, because it's it's really like I love I love the artwork for this. It's really good. Yeah. So that it it it's a a photo of like a wedding and. The band are well. They're not in it, but there's cardboard cutouts of the band in it. So it's it's really beautifully designed. So lovely font game going on. Classic font game, I would say. Um, and it's the way the way it comes across to me, and I'm I'm sure that you've you will be able to talk a bit more about this. Is that it? It does have that kind of classic sort of seventies photo album vibe. And that I think that's very deliberate because of obviously the subject matter that's that's on the album. Yeah. So it wor- it works really well as a piece. I, I agree. So initially, the album had like twelve individual different covers. You could basically choose sort of six double sided mm-hmm. inserts with the individual cardboard cutouts appearing in different scenarios and those those are on you can see them releases. like in the yes. in the insert can't that's you? right that's right yes but yeah in terms of that the, the the image which which made it to the the classic front cover if you like so it's a real wedding basically <laughs> <laughs> right and here's a story so chris hawkins uh, six music presenter who's really good by the way i like chris hawkins show a lot in 2014 he interviewed dom o'connor tom's lad (laughs) (laughs) Uh, who was the groom from that photograph so he tells a story when we got married we were putting together the wedding ourselves we pulled a lot of favors from people we knew My little brother Ben went to art college in Edinburgh and he'd made friends with this guy who subsequently became a photographer and had done a lot of work with the Britpop bands. I think he worked with Blur and Elastica and, of course, Pulp. So we asked him about a couple of months before whether he would be prepared to do some of the photos for us. He couldn't actually do it because he said he was busy working on some Pulp stuff, but he phoned us about a week before and said Pulp were thinking about using some photos with real people in them, including a wedding photo, and if we could do some joke shots where he'd bring some life-size cutouts of the band down and it would do some proper wedding shots for us as well. And basically that's what happened. They rocked up on the wedding day with the life-size cutouts of the band and took photos. <laughs> Brilliant! Yes, and what great. a boss! What a boss way to get your um, wedding photos done. Well, exactly, and so and even better. Apparently, like they didn't, they, they, there was no follow up to say, "Oh yeah, they're going to stick your photo on the front cover." It's <laughs> so like, "Oh yeah, cheers for that." Here's your wedding photos. So he didn't actually know they were going to use that picture until he's like walking around HMV one day, <laughs> saw the album on sale, it's like, "Oh, that's me wedding." <laughs> Brilliant! It's great, isn't it? <laughs> So the only other thing I want to say about the artwork is that there is a small message written on the back of the sleeve. We don't often talk about the back sleeve, mm-hmm. but, but we will do in this occasion. Uh, that message reads, we don't want no trouble. We just want the right to be different. That's all. Well, that beautifully leads us in. Exactly. So without further ado, let's go into the tracks. And we start with Miss Shapes. So it's inspired by Jarvis's experience of going to clubs in Sheffield in the 80s. 
He described it as it was dangerous to go into the centre of town on a week weekend night, as everyone socialised there. You get these packs of blokes all dressed in the same white short sleeve shirt, black trousers and loafers, and they call you a queer or want to smack you because they didn't like your jacket. Thing is, those people hunt in packs, whereas the misfits or misshapes, because of the fact they're more individualistic, are easier targets. So the idea of misshapes is the fancy that the misfits would form some kind of alliance or an army and take over. So I adore this song. So my my note, it's like the communist manifesto for weirdos, loners and outcasts. It's a call to arms. Weirdos of the world unite. All you have to lose is your warhammer. <laughs> Yeah, it's a clarion call. It is a call to arms. It is. And it it absolutely nails it. Because if you've ever felt different, if you've ever felt smarter than than the people who you're knocking around with, if you've ever felt that you don't fit in, that Mm -hmm. this is your song and we're coming to get you. Like all we the only thing that we need to use is our minds. Exactly. It's a war, but it's a war on our terms. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's full of revolutionary gusto throughout. And I, the lyrics are absolutely caustic. We learnt too much at school. Now we can't help but see the future you've got mapped out is nothing much to shout about. It never fails to get the blood pumping. You know, yeah, that, that, that beat just, you beat your fist along with it, don't you, almost? Well, yeah, like we're making a move. We're making it now. I mean, that's proper fighting, like fighting talk. Yeah, exactly, and 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 Jarvis, he, he sounds he sounds great throughout this album, but mm-hmm. straight away, so he's full of that sort of sardonic, sarcastic sneer that yeah you love about him on this. Yeah, it's a superiority, but not in a. It's a it's a funny thing that he gets away with in this in this mm-hmm. album that. He's clearly kind of, as you say, sneering and superior to other people, but also inclusive to the people that are part of his gang. Yeah. So just something else I want to say about the song. So in a, in a later interview with Melody Maker, Jarvis actually reflected on the sort of contradiction of the of the song matter, the subject, and the audience that Pulp had attracted, the Britpop audience mm-hmm. that Pulp had attracted with the success of the album. He says, all you can do is be as precise and be as good at what you do as possible and throw it out there. You can't control who goes into the shop and buys your records. You can't say, oh, we're going to move into a more mature market. The people have to decide that. I mean, you write a song like Misshapes, and it should be perfectly clear what it's saying. I don't like intolerant people. But it's become clear to me that after that last tour that it goes over some people's heads. Townies were coming out to see us. Yeah, and I mean, we talked about something similar when um, we did the Mannix. Mm-hmm. That there were there were people who didn't get what uh, Jarvis was or James Dean Bradfield were talking about or Nicky Y were talking about, but still, it attracted it attracted an audience. And it's it's funny that like, well, I mean, we'll get onto it when we do some other songs on this album. Is the people don't necessarily get the irony that mm. is laced throughout no. the album as well. Not. Very, very much so. And the video to Misshapes is, is really good uh, as well, because it well it tells the story of the song brilliantly, mm-hmm. and it also has Jarvis Cocker in his Superman 3 moment. 
<laughs> Good Jarvis fights evil Jarvis. But he's not flicking peanuts at a uh, no, no. at a bar. <laughs> That's true, and he doesn't chuck himself into a trash compactor either. <laughs> I mean, like evil Superman wasn't that evil. He's just, just he, a bit of a dick. He was just, exactly and uh, unkempt because he hadn't shaved for a bit. Put a plaid shirt on him, and he might be one of the Flea Foxes. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Uh, right. Very last thing to say about this shape. So it was released as a double A side with Sorted for Ease and Wiz in September of 95. It got to number two in the UK. <laughs> oh, God. It was kept off number one by the reprehensible Simply Red. And <laughs> oh, no. And their bizarrely popular fairground. Oh, no. I mean, I think the only reason it was popular was because it was literally played at every fairground in the country. <sighs> yeah, awful. Awful, awful, awful. Simply hook now. <laughs> uh, yeah, Miss Shapes is great. What a start. Yes. A, a belter, absolutely mm-hmm. phenomenal. And then we go on to Pencil Skirt. Full on perv. <laughs> yeah, it, it is grubby, mucky. That's what this is. Oh, right. So... When we were when we were going through this, well, when I first list, like was listening to the album, like it reminded, like it brought back a cringe-inducing memory. Oh, go on. Um, for me, so like for a birthday around this, like I got a new stereo, and my mum and dad wanted me to, you know, make sure that it was, uh, it was working. Mm-hmm. So like it was, it was down, it was downstairs, and. The album that I'd been listening to loads had been different, different class. So put the CD in, press play, and misshape played, and it's it's great. And then, like, obviously, the first line is, "When you raise your pencil skirt, it's like, oh, and uh, whilst me, whilst me, mum's there, no, right, no, pause, Just stop that, stop that, Jarvis. That's brilliant." <laughs> I mean, because it's like, this is the thing. There's no time to settle. It's firstly, no. you start with a fade in, which is yeah. very irregular. And then, yeah, you're straight into the lyrics. Uh, and my God, I just, some of the lyrics, I've kissed your mother twice and now I'm working on your dad. <laughs> it's great. And like, and like, just what's the chorus? I'll be around when he's not in town. I'll show you how you're doing it wrong. I really love it when you tell me to stop. It's turning me on. And then I only come here because I know it makes you sad. That's just, it's perverted evil. Yeah, it is pure pred. And like the thing, the thing is, like, and the brilliance of the writing is that it feels like a proper vignette. It yes. feels like a proper. You're getting the inner monologue from an absolute sleaze. A wrong one. Yeah, and the song the song itself gets better. So it starts off yes. really stripped back and grows into something so much greater. It it's it's great. It just whenever I first first hear it, it like it always <laughs> takes me back to my mum and dad's front room, like going, Oh fucking hell. <laughs> you should have put the uh, your rednecks album on instead. <laughs> I think you'll find the out here, brothers. <laughs> Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Well done. Um, yeah, it, so I agree it's what you said, that the, the song gets better. It starts out quite delicately and then and then, and then then grows into something quite 
quite epic by the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of songs on this album that do that, actually, that have that great contrast between the more subtle, quieter parts and the really bombastic bits, mm-hmm. <laughs> such yeah. as the next one we'll come to talk about, for example. Oh, yeah. Um, just the last thing on Pencil Skirt, I think that, that, that violin riff, it... it, it to me, emphasises the sleaziness because it's it's you know mm-hmm. it's a real seedy sounding little riff that that goes throughout the song. Yeah, and the I mean the violin throughout this album is is really important. Yes. Like you know in the in the song we're about to go on to, you know. Well, shall we go on to the the next song then? It is a beam off. So yeah. I mean, it's one that you may be familiar with, people. It is, of course, Common People, which, as I said was released in May of 95 and got to number two in the UK. So has such an iconic and popular song ever eviscerated a whole group of people so brilliantly and yet so savagely? I mean, it has absolute furious indignation throughout and it's perfectly pitched. Yeah, I agree. And it is an evisceration of class tourism. Of that, uh, we've talked in the past about the heroin chic thing, about the the glorification of poverty and desperation. Mm-hmm. This is the perfect counterpoint to things like fucking Tracy Emin's bed. Well, it's not just it's not just that. It's it's an evisceration of the voyeuristic. As you say, class tourism. So you get, unfortunately, it's been a strain of British life forever. So going back to your Hogarth, uh, Ginali uh, yes. paintings, yes. up to your Benefit Street and your Can't Pay, Take It Away crap that just is poverty porn. Well, and, and Orwell, you know, what was Keep the Astrodistress Flying? That was all around the class structure. Well, all fucking Orwell's books were around the class yeah, structure. Yeah, he did have a fair bit to say about class. <laughs> And I think I think one of the the great parts, and it's a, it's a shame that in the album version you get the extra bit that isn't in the sing in the single, which I absolutely adore yes. because it's that I think it, it it is the encapsulation of that anger. So you will never understand how it feels to live your life with no meaning or control and with nowhere else to go. Yeah. And he said, everybody hates a tourist, especially yeah. one who thinks it's all such a laugh. Exactly. it's uh, Evisceration is right, and yet it sounds so accessible. Yeah. And that's the genius of it. It's hooky as fuck. It is hooky as fuck. So, the iconic uh, subject matter and the iconic opening line, she came from Greece, she had a thirst for knowledge. So yeah, apparently it has its grounding in a in a real life experience from Jarvis Cocker. So in the late eighties, he took a break from pulp and enrolled in a in a film studies course at St Martin's College of Art and Design in London. So in an interview with the Enemy in twenty thirteen, he said, "I'd met this girl from the song many years before when I was at St Martin's College. I'd met her on a sculpture course, but at St Martin's you had a thing called crossover fortnight where you had to do another discipline for a couple of weeks." I was studying film and she might have been doing painting, but we both decided to do sculpture for two weeks. I don't know her name. It would have been around 1988, so it was already ancient history when I wrote about her. He said, yeah, at one point she'd actually told him she wanted to move to Hackney and live like the common people. And it's just a perfect pop song Mm -hmm. with... Well, you've mentioned the Manics already. I will go back to something like Design for Life. 
which similarly is a is a brilliant depiction of of class struggle and so is this in a different way it's it's mm-hmm. it's it's genius uh, and it's fucking massive as you said it's a monolith um deliberately so in fact so <laughs> this is perfect Jarvis Cocker so he says about the recording of the whole album I just thought if you're paying for a 48 track studio you should put something on them you've paid for them Maybe it's because none of us in the band is particularly musically proficient, so if you can't play an amazing solo, just put lots down there and the sheer weight of things going on will do the job. I mean, I would say, Jarvis, do the amazing solo as well as putting loads of tracks down there. <laughs> um, so, yeah, for better or worse, it defined the Britpop movement, didn't it, this? Yeah, it did. It, it absolutely did. And, yeah, it, which is which is the amazing thing about it, that it's, it, managed, it managed to be iconic for a movement that it, that the band really had weren't really part of, to be honest. Well, no, uh, indeed, and so well, I was I was gonna I was gonna read this a bit later on, but I might as well bring it up now. Actually, so this is a, another quote from Nick Banks, who's the drummer uh, around the association with Britpop. He says, "At the time, we just laughed at it. We'd been lumped in with many, many scenes over the years. We just couldn't relate to it." We weren't bothered, and the nearest we were to Britpop was Russell Senior wearing some Union Jack socks. It was always labels that other people foisted upon us. So, and I think Jarvis has been asked what he thinks about it being the, the definitive Britpop anthem, and it's not something he, it's not a label he's particularly keen to embrace, let's say. No, it, you know, it, it, standard, it became a standard bearer for a movement that Pulp weren't really about. Um, yes. The the only other thing that I want to just say about common people is that it it fits in with a strand within British music that goes all the way back to the Beatles, really. So the infamous um, and very famous uh, Beatles rattle your jewelry. Yeah. So exactly that. So uh, for those of you who aren't aware of the quote, uh, so the Beatles did the Royal Variety performance where the Queen Mother and Princess Margaret turn up. And John Lennon brilliantly says, uh, for our last number, I'd like to ask, ask your help. The people in the cheapest seats clap your hands and the rest of you, if you just rattle your jewellery. <laughs> Brilliant. And this is very much within that sentiment. Indeed. So before we move on, there's something else I just want to say. So covers. There's only two. I mean, <laughs> I know, I know definitely one. There's, yes, I am definitely. That is the one I'm definitely going to bring out. Um before I get to that, I, I I have to tell you, Kevin, that sadly, My Chemical Romance did a cover of Common People in 2011. Well, there you go. I've never heard it, and I have no intention of doing so. Uh, but yes, the one that I have to talk about from 2004, produced apparently by Ben Folds of the Ben Folds Five. Wow. Fame, William Shatner. <laughs> I mean, it it's a thing. It is a thing. Jarvis likes it. I mean, of course, Jarvis Cocker because likes it's mad. it. Like that's a, yeah, that's the thing about it is it's nuts. Yeah. Um, it makes no sense whatsoever. But yeah, it's it's certainly we always say about cover versions, do something different. He, he fucking <laughs> does. Shatner did something different with it. Yeah, go and listen to it. It's worth a listen. <laughs> uh, right, should we move on? Yeah, let's move on. I spy. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it. it's called I Spy, and it is a soundtrack to a spy film that I've never seen. <laughs> 
Well, that's it. So it's it when it breaks down and he's he's talking. You know, my favourite parks are car parks. Grass is something you smoke. Birds are something you shag. Take a year in Provence and shove it up your ass. Well, first of all, fucking brilliant lyrics. Yeah. But the whole build then with the strings and everything, it does sound like, it, again, we, we've joked before about things that could have been James Bond themes. Yeah. So this isn't a Bond theme. This is pure Ipcris file. <laughs> nice. Uh, Harry Palmer. Although I would say that, that James Bond is as predatory as the character Jarvis oh, is oh, portraying. De- oh, definitely. I mean, he's just dripping with menace and malevol- uh, malevolence yes. throughout. Malevolence, yeah. And I look, so I'm glad you brought up the uh, year in Provence thing because it just, again, skewers the middle class because it's fucking great. Because at this time, there was a possibly one of the most middle class TV programs since Howard's Way. On TV, which was called A yeah. Year in Provence. Well, it was a it was a book first as well. Yeah, the yeah. Book was was and it was basically this whole yeah middle class fantasy of of let's go and spend a year living you know in amongst the French. Awful, horrible, horrible. Yeah, abs- it's absolutely vindictive. Yeah, ironic humor again, caustic lyrics. But 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 funny with yeah. it, you know. The crowd gasped at Cocker's masterful control, control of his bicycle. Of <laughs> it's fucking brilliant. I mean, you go from you go from like the balalaika style opening, which you know any any like sort of mid sixties spy film has has that in it, and then then it kicks in and it oh it's, it's just great. So I think the 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 production on this. I mean, I'd say it of the whole album, but but perhaps exemplified on I Spy more than anything else. It is it creates an utterly perfect bed for Jarvis Cocker to mm-hmm. to, to dance upon, because when he wants to bring it down low and make it close and make it uncomfortable and sinister, the music comes down low. And like you said, you've got you've got that sort of classic classic spy sound to it. But then, and you've got the things like the double tracking of his whispering during that breakdown, the drums building up. And then when he needs to absolutely belt it out, the music's right there, creating that that crescendo, mm-hmm. if you like. It's so well produced. It's so well performed. It's so well written. It's a fucking brilliant song. I mean, the only, the only thing I... I really really can add to to what you've said there is that i think i think you are absolutely spot on to raise the production because particularly that whispering and mm-hmm. like it's like jarvis is making you a conspirator in his evil evil plan his voyeurism yeah his, uh, you yeah. are you are along for his seedy journey and it it's brilliantly done it is brilliantly done. It's a great tune. It's fucking majestic. Shall we move on? Yeah, okay. All right, so Disco 2000. I mean, this is this is a pure pop single. It is a pure pop single. Well, the, my note... I'll talk about the story about the song in a minute. My The first note I've written here, this is one of those songs I like less every time I hear it. That's not to say I don't like it. I know what you mean. I think with time, I think yeah. it is it's better because it it was massively overplayed. It was massively it 
it's funny how common people has become their standard standard bearer because at the time it was disco 2000s common people was wasn't as i mean it was incredibly popular but disco 2000 was the one that kind of was had a load of radio play i mean yes it did have a load of radio play although disco 2000 only reached number seven whereas common people reached number two but I, I I do. It was heavy rotation all over the place. The video again. It had a good video. It did have a well again, and the cardboard cutouts mm-hmm. were, were were back in action in there. It's so you're right. My feeling to it is certainly because I've heard it so much. But I would also say that compared to the four that have gone before, it just lacks a bit of substance. As you said, it's a pure pop song. Yeah. I suppose it kind of jars after I Spy because you've got and what you've had with pencil skirts as well and misshapes that you've got a lot of a lot of anger and a lot of dirtiness and grubbiness and this is this is a bit more bubblegum really. A good word, a good phrase. Yeah, I agree. So, in an interview in 2020 with Liz Kershaw on Sits Music, Jarvis said, there was a girl called Deborah. She was born in the same hospital as me, not within an hour. I think it was like three hours. But you can't fit three hours into the song without having to really rush the singing. (laughs) But basically, the whole thing was the same. I fancied her for ages, and then she started to become a woman, and her breasts began to sprout, so all the boys fancied her then. I didn't stand a cat and hell's chance. But I did used to sometimes hang around outside her house and stuff like that. Wrong and <laughs> Operation U Tree. I mean, no, I wasn't thinking Operation U Tree. I was thinking pure George McFly. Um... <laughs> yes, <laughs> indeed. Yeah, it's it's good. It's very well known. It's a great. It's another indie disco classic. I do like it. I don't love it. But again, he's he's still giving you. Um the pointers to his people by making references to wood chip on the wood wall chip on the wall and uh, definitely yeah yeah a, a, a good point a good point. okay live bed show is track number six um it's a song about a bed well more specifically a song about the sexual acts that have been performed on said bed it's so again it's such a jarvis cocker song because it's mournful and it's lamenting and what it's 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 lamenting the loss of this this love the the character yes. had and is now gone and it's it's beautifully written it's so it's so cleverly done I think I think it's it's a phenomenal song I think it's really good yeah and yeah it, it is lyrically very very clever it didn't get much rest at first the headboard banging in the night the neighbours didn't dare complain because everything was going right. Now, there's no need to complain because it never makes a sound. Yeah, it is really cleverly written mm-hmm. because it is, it, it isn't obviously a song about a bed. It's a song about the end of that relationship yeah. and the bed is, is the metaphor, if you like, for that. I mean, I'd love to know, even in 1995, where you could buy a bed for a tenner. <laughs> I mean, we don't really want to know where Jarvis is <laughs> from. <laughs> No, that's true. We don't. <laughs> I bought a bed from British Heart Foundation once. It cost me more than a tenner. It's a good bed, actually. It's a good bed. <laughs> Definitely get a new mattress, though. 
Oh, God, yes, 100%, yeah. <laughs> the la-la-las are an interesting touch towards the end. Yeah. Uh, and by interesting, I mean one that I'm not overly keen on. I'm okay with it, but I know what you're saying. The, it doesn't necessarily fit fit the song, really, but I'm, I'm fine. I'm okay with it. Yeah, I, I like the song. I, I would say... Of everything so far, this is the most obvious album track, if you know what I mean. It's, yeah. I wouldn't say it's filler, but this was never going to be a single. No. <laughs> yeah, it's never been a single. List. But yeah, it's 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 good. It's good. It's very clever. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. Um, something changed, Kev. Yeah. There. Thank you. Right. I've never liked this song. Okay. So same here. I've never liked it. It's perfectly nice. It's perfectly well performed, mm-hmm. but it's a much more traditional love song, and it's a bit vanilla. And I don't go to pulp for traditional love songs. I don't exactly. want that. I want I want them uh, sh- like shining a light on the dirty corners of grubby corners of Soho. <laughs> and, and well, so it yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned Soho because it it I would. A lot of the themes in this album are very similar to when we went through non-stop erotic cabaret, mm-hmm. dirty corners of Soho, and and yeah, I, I don't want Mark Armand singing traditional love songs at me. Yeah, um, and the same with, with Jarvis. So apparently, it was an old song written in the mid eighties. It feels like that as well. It does feel like it. Yeah, so Jarvis said in 96 to the Melody Maker, it was originally written about 12 years ago. My sister sang an early version, but it had different words. Never got used, and I just remembered it. Uh, because it had written such a long time ago, it made me wonder what I was doing then. And I worked out that it must have been written quite near to me meeting this girl. It's just wondering, really, if I hadn't gone out and met this particular person in this particular nightclub and formed a relationship, how different would my life have been? It's not really about fate, it's more about the randomness of things. He's also said in the Rolling in an interview with the Rolling Stone, that's the one pulp song that seems to crop up. I've been stopped by a lot of people who tell me this song was played at their wedding. They walk down the aisle to it. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, you can't imagine anyone walking down the aisle to feeling cold love. <laughs> <laughs> Or pencil skirt, for that matter. <laughs> well, it does talk about a veil in pencil skirts. So. <laughs> you can tell it's from a different era. I agree. Totally, it doesn't fit with the rest of the album. It doesn't have any of the cynicism of what we've been listening to for the for the last six tracks and what we'll be listening to for the next five. Yeah, I mean, like, I described Disco 2000 as bubblegum. But this, this this isn't bubblegum pop. Like, cause Disco 2000 still has that, not necessarily cynicism, but it has the tragic end. The tragic ending. So, like, she can't she can't go out to meet him because she mm-hmm. she's she's got a baby and stuff like stuff like that. This is this is pure like Donny Osmond's. Yeah, it is. I'm I'm not into it. This is weak as piss. Primary school orange squash. <laughs> <laughs> And the anachronisms really bother me. I'm sorry, you can't write a song two hours before you met someone that then specifically and explicitly refers to the conversations you've had with that person. I'm not having it. Unless you're fucking H.G. Wells and you're into eugenics. Sorry, you're into time travel. Um, No, I'm not having it. (laughs) No. I I think we should just move on. Yes, let's move on. Sorted, freeze and whiz. Sounds like you've got a good uh, night plan. 
I've got a lot to say about this song, Kev. Right, so I've mentioned it was a double A side with Misshapes. It was very first performed at Glastonbury in 95. And uh, at that performance, Jarvis explained the, the, the inspiration for the, for the title. It's a phrase a girl I met at Sheffield once told me. She'd been to see the Stone Rose at Spike Island. And I said, what do you remember about it? And she said, well, there were all these blokes walking around saying, is everybody sorted for ease and whiz? <laughs> yeah. Fair play. So there was quite a lot of controversy around the song very manufactured controversy as well well so <laughs> so the daily mirror printed a front page story with the headline ban this sick stunt uh alongside an article written by <laughs> z-list celebrity talking head kate thornton <laughs> uh which said the song was pro-drugs and called for the tune to be banned. I mean, so the mirror, the mirror was very much on the getting a celebrity to comment about things uh, bandwagon. Because let's just forget that it's only a few years later that Caprice weighed in on whether United should play in the third round of the FA Cup. <laughs> oh my God! Yes. <laughs> wow! I'd forget. <laughs> Oh God, I'd forgotten about that. That's fucking brilliant. <laughs> so, so yeah, the inlay to the sleeve of the single uh, allegedly, actually, <laughs> showed people how to make an origami wrap or like a parcel so you could stick your drugs in there. Uh, and uh, yeah, Kate Thornton in an interview with the NME was quoted as saying, we wanted to see the sleeve pulled and we thought it was a crusade we would take up single-handedly. Fucking crusade being the operative word there. Uh-huh. I think the sleeve is something that will concern our readers, although it may not concern yours. <sighs> so, of the song and its meaning, Jarvis Cocker said in an interview with The Telegraph of all newspapers in 1995, it's neither a condemnation nor a celebration of drugs. It's just a factual look. It's about a time when I went to a lot of warehouse things. It was completely different to go into a Roxy discotheque in the middle of town. People were so friendly. Then, of course, you realised that it was mainly because they'd taken loads of drugs and you became disillusioned with it. One minute, people would be shaking your hand saying, yeah, all right, Keezy, you're my best mate. And then as soon as the thing had finished, you were trying to thumb a lift of the same people and they'd be like, fuck off. So, yeah, it's like, just fucking listen to the words. It is not, it isn't pro-drugs no. or anti-drugs. It's just saying, this is what happens. This is what people do. So my, my note about it is that it's brilliant writing because this isn't pro-drugs or anti-drugs. It's reportage. So how many young people of this era and of many others afterwards lost a part of their mind somewhere in a field? It's 6am, I want to go home. Exactly. They've, you know, they've done all the things they've done over the night and they're tired. Yeah. And they, and like the whole thing, when you come down, what if you never come down? And like all this is, like it is it is the, the story of young people at this time taking ease and whiz and... Yeah. It, it's not as as we said. Like it's not it's not condoning it or anything. It's just saying this is what it's like. Exactly. It is. It is as I've said on earlier tracks. It is an acerbic, wry take on exactly what you said. What tens of thousands of young people were doing every single weekend. It's a song about people going to raves and doing drugs, talking about it, shining a lens on it, saying this is what happens. So yeah, let's put aside the 
tabloid fueled faux moral panic. What do you think of the song? I think it's great. I think it's absolutely brilliant. It is. Um, again, like as I say, the writing is really, it's fantastic. And, but musically, it's really good as well. Yeah, it is. So perhaps not musically dense as previous no. tracks. But what I really like about the production is the way it is meant to sound like a live track. So you've obviously got the sort of crowd noise at the start, uh, but you've got reverb on everything to give it that sound of being played at a live venue, to give it that sound of being played somewhere in a field in Hampshire. All right. uh, In front of 20,000 people. (laughs) It is a great song. It brings back lots of memories and it is always a treat to hear them play this live. Yeah, definitely. Okay, shall we move on? Yes, let's do it. To a wholesome piece called Feeling Called Love. Full on Predator. <laughs> well, as he says, this isn't chocolate boxes and roses. It's dirtier than that. Oh, yeah, it is. Because that's what it is. It's, this is just dripping with infatuation, with lust. And it's and it's all from well no so I love the production again with that with that sort of synth bass and oh drum god that the synth the synth just create this huge foreboding uh, feeling yeah. throughout but I, I'm gonna say it the vocal sounds like an obscene phone call <laughs> it it does it's the heavy breathing it it speaks of secret trysts and furtive glances across across a crowded room that's exactly mm-hmm. exactly what it's it's yeah it is it is full on filth yeah. grubby dirty you do need a wash afterwards <laughs> yes uh, it's another one again that starts really quiet the quiet mm-hmm. loud quiet loud structure is really good there's tempo changes throughout it it sounds massive I like everything about this track. It's great. It's absolutely great. Mm, it is. All right then. So we so we're like moving away from uh, the seediness. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, I want to see you standing in your underwear, Kev. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> so Nick Banks says underwear was one of the first tracks we recorded from the record. I think he then goes on to say. So this is from the. Twitter, Tim Burgess' Twitter listening mm-hmm. party. Uh, pretty much sums it up. More grubby musings from JC. <laughs> <laughs> because that that is, yeah. It, it's grubby, it's filthy, it's dirty. It's really well performed. It is. It's. I've always loved underwear. And it's another one that makes great use of the quiet bits and the loud bits. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really good counterpoint to Feeling Called Love. You could almost look at it as the same events being described by the other party okay yeah i'll i i like that i like that uh version of it so whereas the previous track you had that sense of that desperation that that carnal lust this one is looking back after the event if you like it with that hollow sense of regret with that feeling of shame um and so in that regard, I think the ordering of the tracks is brilliantly, mm-hmm. brilliantly done. Yeah, I, I, I honestly have nothing more to add. All right then, Monday morning. Well, it's not actually, it's Monday evening, but... <laughs> so, apparently this was originally called Scar Song, and it does have quite a Scar feel to it, actually. Really? <laughs> I did not pick that up at all. 
But I'm sorry with the with the with the rhythm and especially in the breakdown. Well, okay, okay. like I, I'll, I'll be honest, I didn't pick that up. Um, but you know, fine. Okay, what do you think of Monday Morning? So it's not the most amazing song. It is a bit of album filler, but because the band and Jarvis are so great, yeah, that they managed to turn it into something really enjoyable. That it's it's not the it's not the best song in the world. It's not something that that really sticks with your loads, but because they're really good at what they do and they're tight as fuck, it's still good. Yeah. So the on your marks, get set, go bit. Mm-hmm. It, that's yeah. It's it is really good, and I, it's a good bounce along. Not yeah. the best song on the album, but not bad at all. Very listenable. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, I have nothing more to say about Monday morning. No, that was a very quick visit. Uh, shall we go to Bar Italia to finish things off? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was thinking of Pasta Italia. <laughs> With the blandest Italian food you will ever taste. Bella Italia. Oh, is it Bella Italia? That's what I was thinking of. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah, quite. Uh, so, apparently Bar Italia is an homage to a famous Soho coffee bar. So after a heavy night out, waifs and strays would often end up there for a, for a sobering coffee. What do you think? So, I really like it. It's yeah. quite an unexpected end to, to the album, but... It it is like I suppose it's like the um, aforementioned bar that it's it's talking about that yep. all these waifs and strays and misfits and um, seedy characters have ended up here at the end of the journey. Exactly, and in that regard, I think it is a perfect way to close this particular album mm-hmm. because it brilliantly evokes that feeling. You've pulled an all nighter. It's been the best night of your life. You don't want it to end, but your hangover's starting to creep up on you. you, you you're walking out of the place, and yeah, people are on their way to work. Um, so you go to this place, it's a bit run down, but you know that the people in there are your people. I, and I love, I love the closing lyrics. If we get through this alive, I'll meet you next week, same place, same time. That's what you get from clubbing it. You can't go home to bed because it hasn't worn off yet. And now it's morning. There's only one place we can go. It's round the corner in Soho where other broken people go. Perfect. Brilliant. All right, we're done. Yeah. Should we get into some reviews? I think we should. Right, okay. So uh, as we alluded to when we did the, the critic scores, universally praised then and now. So, in the NME, John Mulvey summarised the record as funny, phenomenally nasty, genuinely subversive, and, of course, hugely flamingly pop. Different classes are deft, atmospheric, occasionally stealthy, and frequently booming, confident record. In the Melody Maker, Simon Reynolds said the album's title alone announces that Cocker's broadened his scope has another axe to grind, social antagonism. He also said Pulp was not so much the jewel in Britpop's crown, more like the single solitary band who validate the whole sorry enterprise, which is a a, a rare uh, instance of Melody Maker pretty much getting it spot on. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, stop clocking all that. <laughs> Even American critics loved what is a quintessentially British album. 
So David Frick in his Rolling Stone review called it a brilliant, eccentric, irresistible pop album about fucking and fucking up. The record is rife with sexual combat and bitter recrimination. Even in a truly classless society, sex separates the men from the boys, the women from the girls, the romantics from the mere runters. What a great word that is, by the way. (laughs) Different class is the sound of Jarvis Cocker keeping score with delicious accuracy. Fair play. Yeah, that's a great review. I have one more review to get to. Oh, God. And we know who wrote it. I mean, he liked it. He gave it an A minus, as we've already seen. I mean, he still managed to spectacularly miss the point, though. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay. And I quote it's not short either. 1996 won't produce a more indispensable song than Common People, but that doesn't mean young Americans know enough about the bourgeoisie to get it. And when sex gods are added up, Jarvis Cocker's Brian Ferry plus Blur and Oasis won't equal George Michael. But beyond his devotion to songcraft, Cocker isn't Blur Oasis. Culture Club with lyrics is more like it. Smart and glam, swish and het, its jangle subsumed beneath swelling crescendos or nagging keebs. Yes, he writes keebs instead of keyboards. And its rhythms steeped in rave. This isn't pat enough for the disco still sucks crowd. And although Cocker's stick to the over four albums has no need to expend time on, suggest he's attained a measure of maturity, his breakthrough is a mutation, not a fruition. So, yeah, he doesn't get it. Not at all. What the fuck is he on about George Michael and Culture Club? Like, rave vibes. Where? Where the fuck? There's a song about going to a rave, I suppose. Jesus. (laughs) Quite. What a dick. Oh, dear. Legacy. So, well... If the Glastonbury set in 95 broke them into the mainstream, then, then different class cemented their position of one of the heavy heavyweights of the of the music scene. You know, it really was them, Blur and Oasis, who were the holy trinity, if you like. And Pop thoroughly deserved their place amongst those two, as they demonstrated by winning the Mercury Prize, ahead of Morning Glory, the album which had swept all before it in 95. Jarvis reached infamy at the Brit Awards in 1996, uh, brilliantly, when, when he ran on stage during Michael Jackson's frankly <laughs> laughable performance of, of Earth Song to basically shake his ass Look, at the crowd. There's, there's so many things about that whole thing that are absolutely fucking wild. So, the, so he was arrested on suspicion of assault. He was represented by Bob, Bob Mortimer. Mortimer. <laughs> and... What got him off the hook for the assault charge was video footage captured by David Bowie's team. Jesus. <laughs> it's great. It's absolutely wild. <laughs> it is. Um, so as as you alluded to earlier on, that, that because of their, their, their history as a band, if you like, their, their reaction and their reflection on, on suddenly being foist into the public eye, it took its toll, I guess. So, in an interview with New York Times, Jarvis Cocker said, In the UK, suddenly I was crazily recognised and I couldn't go out anymore. It tipped me to a level of celebrity I could never have known existed. And I wasn't equipped for it. It had a massive, generally detrimental effect on my mental health. He wasn't the only person that was becoming disillusioned with that newfound fame. So, long-time member Russell Sr. left in 1997, saying that it wasn't creatively rewarding to be in pulp anymore. And that feeling of 
disillusionment of exhaustion came pouring out on This Is Hardcore, the follow-up album in 98. It's a dark old album. It is. Well, Jarvis Cocker himself says it is an album full of songs about panic attacks, pornography, fear of death, and getting old. It's a really good album. I really like it. I I like it, but you can see why it didn't do well, because the lead singles are not an easy listen. No, exactly. It's not a pop album. Uh, yeah, it's it, but it's a really good album. I, I would yeah, recommend I really anyone like to, to. Yeah, absolutely. But yes, as you said, you can see why it wasn't as what is successful. Although it did reach number one in the UK still, but didn't sell anywhere near as many copies as Different Class. Uh, in two thousand and one, they released what what proved to be until now their last album, uh, We Love Life. It is also quite good. It was produced by Scott Walker, which I didn't wow, realize until I didn't uh, realize. That. Yeah, exactly. Although. Listening to it, you can actually sort of go, yeah, okay. Songs like Sunrise and Bad Cover Version, mm-hmm. you can go, yeah, I, I can I can see. And, and there's, there's an even more laconic style to the way Jarvis sings some of those tracks as well. Anyway, so after that, they were on a 10-year hiatus. Jarvis established himself as a national treasure. <laughs> he did indeed. <laughs> even doing adverts for Eurostar. Indeed. They reformed in 2011 to do a series of live shows and go on tour. That included a slot on the park stage at Glastonbury. Uh, I was there. It was fucking phenomenal. It was it was sort of early evening, 7 o'clock time. Glorious, like, sun cracking the flags day. Sun starting to sink a bit lower in the sky. Everyone's having a lovely old time, particularly the band. They were fucking brilliant. They then played their last ever gig in Sheffield in December of 2013. Except, well, it's not their last ever gig, is it, Kev? No, it is not. They have reformed. They have re-reformed. Yes. (laughs) Like a jellyfish. (laughs) Or the T-1000 after. (laughs) See, they didn't think that through. Like, smashed him into a thousand pieces in a a steel foundry. In a fucking steel Foundry, exactly. It's going to be warm in there. <laughs> so yeah, they play a load of gigs next summer. Uh, although not as they, 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 it was initially announced, we're going on tour. Brilliant, and there's like four gigs in the UK. Yeah, so that's not a tour. They may well do do some more things, but I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. But yeah, okay. I just want to leave the last word on different class to uh, the BBC's Mike Diver. Uh, which, far from being a euphemism for something, is apparently the name of one of their music critics. (laughs) Uh, So he wrote in 2011 of Different Class and said, Over 15 years since its release, Different Class continues to reward the listener with some of the smartest, slinkiest, sauciest, spectacular pop songs of a decade that was, looking back, not that brilliant, once the bucket hats and ironic anoraks are whipped away. Yeah. And I think that's all she wrote. Yeah, I'd I'd say so. Okay, then. Uh, I guess all that's left to do is best song, worst song. So where are you going, Kev? It's dead easy, this one. So whilst I adore so many things on this album, the best song on it is Common People, and the worst song on it is Something Changed. Dead easy. I agree with you about the worst song. 
it, it is something changed. I've never liked it. I actually agree with you about the best song. It is Common People, but I don't want to be Johnny Obvious, and I fucking love I Spy, so that's what I'm going for. Boss, I could have could have gone with that. I could have gone with Miss Shapes. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant stuff. Uh, okay, I think we're done. So just remind people what you're going to be taking us through in a couple of weeks. So in a couple of weeks, we will be doing the Arctic Monkeys debut album, Whatever people say I am, that's what I'm not. Excellent. Cannot wait. Before then, however, Kevin, how might people keep in touch with us? What's been going on in uh, Twitterland? So, um, as as we mentioned at the start of the pod, the, the World Cup has been on. Various things have been said. So Gianni Infantino made um, a speech at the beginning of the tournament. And I can exclusively reveal, this is an album clash exclusive that his uh, we've managed to get hold of the text of his speech for what he's going to say at the world you know the world the closing Cup final, ceremony the closing ceremony so i'm a bitch i'm a lover i'm a child i'm a mother i'm a sinner i'm a saint i do not feel ashamed magnificent kevin <laughs> <laughs> you've been you've been away for a couple of weeks but you are back on form so um yes if you want more um exclusives like that you can go to our twitter at clash album if you like carefully curated quality content go to uh our insta at clash album or if you um want to sign up tim for the meredith brooks uh play <laughs> subscription <Club>. list <laughs> sign him up at albumclash at gmail.com brilliant stuff yeah thanks for listening guys hope you've enjoyed it uh keep in touch with the show let us know uh what you feel like when you are uh, accepting blood money from a brutal regime uh that is intent on sports washing its reputation through hosting global sporting events yeah hope you've enjoyed it guys well uh, if my calculations are correct, this show goes out just before Christmas. I think it goes out three days before Christmas. So, for those of you celebrating it, we hope you have a lovely Christmas, a happy Hanukkah, and a boss Kwanzaa. Crazy Kwanzaa. There you go, crazy Kwanzaa. I like that. <laughs> and yeah, we shall see you in 2023. Yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Take care. Cheers. Bye.